we're here in Matthew chapter 13 because Jesus, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew's gospel uses that phrase, kingdom of heaven, 30 times in his gospel. Uh, He's the only gospel that uses that phrase, kingdom of heaven. The other gospels use the phrase, kingdom of God. Essentially, they they mean the same thing. And Matthew here, he records Jesus' teachings here in Matthew chapter 13, and Jesus is speaking to a crowd of his followers. Now, Jesus was a very popular guy at this time, had hundreds of thousands of followers, very popular figure. People would follow him um, wherever he would travel. He was a very polarizing figure. Some people didn't like Jesus because of his, um, his power and authority. Some were jealous of Jesus and envious of him in that way. Jesus, obviously being the son of God, had the ability to perform miracles and he taught with power and authority. And some of the religious leaders didn't appreciate Jesus because Jesus was taking the attention off of them and rightfully giving himself attention. He, he is uh, the Godhead. He is the God in flesh, the, the Son of God. So um, Jesus was teaching and preaching to glorify his Father in heaven. And so the religious leaders were upset by this. Jesus is glorifying his Father in heaven. And um, this is just kind of a side note here. Um, sometimes we are upset because we don't get the attention we feel like we deserve. But um, the attention should never be ours. The attention should all be about Jesus. So here at Young Adults, we talk about Jesus. Um, we fellowship and have Bible studies all centered around that figure, Jesus, because Jesus is worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory. And so Jesus here, he's speaking to uh, many of his followers, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so we've entered a five-week series. We started this series last week, so we have four more weeks here in this series. And Jesus here, in describing the kingdom of heaven, he uses six different parables, He describes the kingdom of heaven saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he gives it a comparison. And he uses six different parables. Now, again, what is a parable? Some recap from last week. A parable is um, a, a tool of communication that Jesus often uses to drive home a moral truth. Uh, parable in the Greek, it's parabole, and it literally means to come alongside. So Jesus used parables to come alongside his illustrations to drive home a moral truth. And so he uses six parables to explain and describe and communicate the concept of the kingdom of heaven. And here are the six different parables that he uses. This is the first one we looked at last week. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. We talked about that last week. Tonight, we're going to look at number two. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. In week three, we'll see the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, hidden treasure, a merchant seeking pearls, and the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he uses these six different parables to communicate what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven what does Jesus mean when he uses that phrase? Well, he, he means it in two different senses of the word. The kingdom of heaven, first, is physical. Because the kingdom of heaven is a physical place called heaven where people who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, they will go spend their eternity in this real physical place called heaven. It's a physical place, but the kingdom of heaven is also a spiritual place in the sense that the kingdom of heaven is about rulership and God desires to rule and reign in your hearts. 
And when you turn from sin and you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he fills you with his very spirit and presence and that now you don't uh, abide by your own authority, but you have given your life over to the authority of God. So he rules and reigns in your life spiritually, in your hearts. So the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual place in that sense. And the overall picture of the kingdom of heaven is about this concept of rulership. And I mentioned this last week that someone or something is ruling your life, whether you know it or not. Because either you have asked God to sit on the throne of your hearts, and God is your authority, and God is your king, and God is the one ruling your life, or, or you're on the throne of your heart, and, and you decide what you do, you're your own moral standard, you're your own authority, and so you are the king of your life. The reality of this concept, the kingdom of heaven, is that there cannot be two kings in your life. There cannot be two kings in your heart. There is no co-regency here with God. Either you have given your life completely to God, and he's your new authority, and you abide by God's uh, playbook, which is the scriptures, the Bible, or you're your own authority. You're, you're the own king of your life, and there is no co-regency here. And many of us, we, we try to play both sides Okay, God is my king when it comes to these matters, but I want to be king when it comes to these matters of my life. And we play this game with God and we say, God, I, keep, I, I want to keep these things. I want to be in charge of these things. I'm not ready to let go of these things, but I'll give you these things. You can have these things, God. But the kingdom of heaven, there is no co-regency. And it is a daily battle where we have to choose, okay, God, you're, you're king today. I give you my fear, give you my worry, give you my temptation, I give you my heart, I give you everything, God. What you say goes. Even if it makes me feel uncomfortable, even if my feelings and my flesh tell me to do one thing, God, I'm not going to abide by my feelings or my emotions. I'm going to abide by the word of God. I'm going to put my hope and trust in you, God. So this is what Jesus is communicating here. And when he goes through these different parables, he's communicating the fact that Listen, if, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, this is, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And these are how citizens who belong to this kingdom, this is, how, this is how they behave. And this is what we need to be aware of. So, Jesus here, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Last week we looked at number one, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. And Jesus says that he was the one who sows good seed, but there is an enemy, Satan, who attempts to sow bad seed and corrupt the kingdom. And so we talked about Satan's role in the kingdom of heaven, how Satan is a real being and hell is a real place and there is real judgment because Jesus here, he talks in the first parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. That's Jesus planting the word and saving people and using people who belong to him to advance the kingdom of heaven. But there is a kingdom of darkness who opposes the kingdom of God and opposes the work of God in your life. And we have to be aware of this. We have to understand Satan's a real being. He's not just this symbol of evil. He's a real being who opposes you. He hates you because you look like your father and you love your father and you want to obey your father and he hates that. So he's opposing you and he's that corrupt evil influence in the kingdom of heaven attempting to corrupt God's work and attempting to corrupt God's people. Hell is a real place reserved for people who reject God and his offer into the kingdom. And so we talked about that, and the the exhortation was, therefore, because Satan's a real being, because hell is a real place, we need to remain faithful and strong in this lifetime. 
So that was parable number one. Parable number two we're going to look at tonight. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Very strange here. Let's check this out. Read uh, again, Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, Another parable I put forth to you, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Again, he's using another agricultural illustration here. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Let's pray. God, before we go any further, we just want to commit our Bible study to you. We love you. I pray that you would teach us now. pray that you would be our teacher, Lord. We thank you, God, and in the context of Valentine's Day, we thank you that you first loved us, that you died for us, and we just want to respond tonight and respond to that love by reading your word, studying it out, learning from it, and obeying it. Thank you for loving us. We love you, and we pray that you would just teach us now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said together, amen. So the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed here, Jesus says. What does Jesus mean when he compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed? Well, just so that we can have some kind of visual illustration, um, here are some mustard seeds uh, in someone's hand. So you can just visually see how small and tiny these things are. And this is what God compares the kingdom of heaven to. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he says... The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. So Jesus, Jesus is, it's a very agricultural society. They, they would have had an idea as to the size of a mustard seed. Maybe Jesus is even holding up a mustard seed in his hand. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like one of these. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is the least among all the seeds. And then he says, But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, I will tell you that some, and maybe even most commentaries that you read, will interpret the parable to describe the Christian movement. And even in my own research and in my study, this was the majority of what I found. Bible commentaries and scholars would would. Say, Jesus is talking about the mustard seed and how it's the least of all the seeds, but it's going to grow into this beautiful tree so large that even the birds will find shelter in it. And most Bible scholars will say that Jesus is talking about this healthy, beautiful growth and expansion of the church. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is actually talking about that. I don't believe Jesus is describing this great, healthy growth of the kingdom of heaven in Christianity, mainly in light of the context. And I'm not alone in this. Um, There are some Bible commentaries, as I studied, who fell under this category. I don't believe that Jesus is describing this healthy expansion of the church, but rather, I believe that Jesus is actually giving a warning. He's giving a warning of the possible corruption in the church that we have to be aware of. 
Now, why do I believe that that's the better interpretation? If I'm wrong, that's totally fine, and Jesus will let me know when we get to heaven. But this is why I believe that Jesus is actually giving a warning of the potential corruption within the church, rather than, oh, this is a beautiful depiction of the growth of the kingdom and the growth of the church and the expansion of Christianity. I believe Jesus is actually giving a warning, mainly because of the context which which we're reading here. First, notice he says in verse 32, describing the seed, the seed is indeed the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Now, mustard seeds don't normally grow to be large trees. Normally, most of the time, mustard seeds grow to be um, bushes, It's something that's abnormal or atypical. If you see a mustard seed that grows into this monstrosity of some kind of a tree, mostly, normally, mustard seeds grow to be some kind of large bush. It's not normally a tree. So it seems, it appears that in verse 32, Jesus is describing something that's abnormal. It's atypical, some kind of monstrosity. This this large, huge tree grows from this tiny little seed. He's describing something that's not normal. It's not natural. And then another important note here is the birds. The birds. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. It's it's Valentine's Day. Ladies, please tell me you know what that's from. The notebook. Okay, we're moving on. I'll stop being awkward. The birds. Jesus here, he says, the birds are perched in the branches of this tree. The tree grows to be so large this something unusual, something that's not normal, grows to be so large that the trees perch in its branches. Okay, so in Bible school, something you learn in your hermeneutics class, which hermeneutics is just a fancy theological word for the study of the Bible. It was one of my favorite classes at Liberty, hermeneutics, because the class taught you how to properly study the scriptures. I loved this class. And in hermeneutics class, there's something called expositional constancy, expositional constancy. What that basically means is all throughout scripture, you're going to see symbolism. There's going to be typology. And when the Bible talks about something, can be something or someone, and there's, there's symbolism, whenever you read the scripture, there's going to be consistency and constancy to what that thing represents. For example, in the Bible, when you see oil, usually oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Um, for example, to our text, when, when the writers and authors of scripture talk about birds, most of the time you see the, uh, the, the um, symbolism of birds in scripture. Birds are not something that is pretty or beautiful or, or fun or, or nice. The birds are evil, bad, bad birds. So expositional constancy, when most of the time when you're searching the scriptures and you see birds in some kind of illustration or typology, most of the time it's referencing something that's evil or wicked. And we know this even from the own text of Matthew chapter 13. So expositional constancy, when you see birds in one passage of the gospels and then you see birds in another passage of the gospels, it doesn't change. Birds here mean something nice. It doesn't just change to mean something evil all of a sudden. There's, there's constancy. There's consistency. And here we see in Matthew chapter 13, check out verses 3 and 4. Jesus is talking about another parable, and here he describes the birds. He uses birds as an illustration. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, he talks about this parable, and it says, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, 
A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds, note this, and the birds came and ate the seed up. Okay, and then jump to verse 18. He describes the parable, and he tells you who the birds are. In verse 18, he says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So in verses 3 and 4, he says, the birds come and they snatch away the good seed planted in someone's heart. Then in verse 18, he says, the birds represent the wicked one who snatches the word of God in someone's heart. So the birds represent corruption. The birds represent Satan. Okay, so then all of a sudden, when you get down to verse 31, the birds don't just all of a sudden become something beautiful and nice. If there's constancy and there's consistency here, birds represent something evil. So for those two reasons, because a mustard seed doesn't normally grow into this tree, something unusual and unnatural is happening here. And because birds, in the context of Jesus' parables here, represent something evil and wicked, I believe that the better interpretation of this parable is Jesus is describing, listen, there is going to be a time where there's going to be something unnatural hap- Something unnatural happens where the kingdom of heaven is going to be invaded by corrupt influences who attempt to find lodging and shelter in the church. And this is the warning that Jesus gives here. And it's so true of today that the kingdom of heaven here on earth is made up of believers where God is ruling and reigning in our hearts. Yes, there will be an eventual kingdom of heaven when we pass from this earth, a physical place. In the meantime, God is ruling and reigning in our hearts. We are called the church, the body of believers who love Jesus Christ. And within the kingdom of heaven, within the body of believers, there will be corrupt influences at times that attempt to find shelter and nest in the church. And Jesus is saying, you have to be aware of this. My dad taught on this parable a little bit more than a year ago. He was, he's in Luke now, but he was in the gospel of Matthew. And so I was, I was just as I was studying, I was listening to what my dad was talking about on a Sunday morning, talking about Matthew chapter 13. And, um, and he was teaching on this parable and he, he said this concerning this passage, and I think it was just really good. And in describing this, he said, there's a warning here about the kingdom of heaven that it will be fraught with corrupt influences and how we need to be wise and discerning about what is perched in the branches. And he went on to say, the liberal church today that has abandoned the word of God, that has embraced and celebrated abhorrent lifestyles that has substituted biblical justice for social justice is nothing more than an evil influence perched in the branches of an overgrown tree that looks nothing like it was supposed to. And I, I, I agree with him on that. There have been, especially now in our day and age where information is so easily accessible and there's so much technology and there, there are so many opinions and so many voices, it has become so easy for anyone to have some kind of influence and to give their opinion and for that opinion to popularize and for it to infect the church and it goes completely against the doctrines of Christianity. And 
all the more reason why we need to be that much more vigilant as a body of young adults to use wisdom and discernment whenever we hear different voices or opinions, whenever we see different movements, whenever we hear different teachings or see different influencers. We have to be discerning because Jesus here, he warns, there will come a day when corrupt influences attempt to perch in the branches of the church and you need to be aware of this. And I, I, I say this to you because I think that our generation, the, the Gen, Gen Z, Gen X, the millennial generation, we need to be aware of the influence that's out there concerning different opinions regarding scripture and the church. And we just have to use extra discernment. We just have to. We have to be in the word. We have to be here in fellowship with other believers. And, and we have to just, everything that we hear and see, it, it, Satan loves to use our emotions to his advantage. And he loves to use our emotions to um, hop on the bandwagon of just any kind of new teaching or trendy message or ideology or some kind of movement that's happening in our culture because things can become so popular nowadays through sharing or spreading the word or just whatever it might be that if it's popular, it seems normal. And if it's normal, we associate that with, well, then it must be moral. And if something becomes popular, it's normalized. And when something's normalized, we think it's moral. But just because it's normal doesn't mean that it's moral. And so Jesus here, here in his parable, he's just talking about the, the fact that there, there will be influences outside of the walls of the church that attempt to infiltrate the church with unbiblical doctrine, unbiblical messages, unbiblical behavior. And we as the church, we just need to be aware of it and use discernment. And so I want to just talk to you in the few remaining minutes that we have left just about discernment. How, how can I develop discernment in my own life? What should I look for? Because a lot of the stuff that's out there is not biblical. Some stuff, some stuff is good. Some stuff is fine. So how do I sift through that? What should I look for? Um, when I was growing up, and now that I've gone into ministry, even all the more so, something I remember my dad telling me was there is... If, if he could choose one spiritual tool to have that at times just seems to be the most important spiritual tool that we can use, it's the, it's the spiritual gift of discernment. And he said, it, it is incumbent upon you, Austin. I remember him saying this to me when I was in middle school, high school growing up. Um, it's incumbent upon you as you go through life and you hear different stuff and you see different stuff, you've got to use discernment. And you've got to develop spiritual discernment. And, and I could argue that the spiritual gift of discernment given by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the most important spiritual gifts. I know that, you know, all of the gifts of the Spirit are, are important and they're vital to the health of the church. Discernment is, is, is up there for me. Because when, when we are susceptible to corrupt influences and we start to believe unbiblical things and unbiblical doctrines and unbiblical gospel, then it will fester in our hearts and we'll be susceptible to falling into all these other ideologies and, and all of these other behaviors that are just unbiblical. Because when we, discernment involves, involves the mind. 
and, and when, you, when you fall prey to allowing unbiblical things into your mind, it seeps into your heart, and your heart then seeps into your behavior. So, so what you think can change your mind. That's why repentance, actually the word repentance means a changing of the mind. And so when you turn from sin and you trust in Christ, you're actually changing your mind to say, I'm not going to follow the ways of the world or my own flesh. I'm actually going to follow Christ. And so it starts with the mind. It's a change of the mind. And so the mind is so important when we use discernment, we exercise the mind that God has given us to discern that which, was, that which is true from that which is false. That's what discernment is recognizing that which is true from that which is error. So we exercise the mind that God has given us, and when we have a right mind, we have a right heart. When we have a right heart, we have right behavior. So discernment exercises the, the mind, and it's an important thing because we, we, sift through, we, we, we sift through all this information daily through our phones, on the computer, TV, from our friends, and it's all just filtering through our brains, through our mind. And so we have to put on the helmet of salvation. That's what Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God. He starts with the helmet of salvation to guard the mind. So we use discernment through the mind. It affects the heart, and then our heart affects behavior. But when we have a bad mind, we have a bad heart, we have a bad behavior. That's how the cycle goes. And so it starts with discernment. It's incumbent upon this generation to use wisdom and discernment pertaining to the evil that will attempt to infiltrate and corrupt the church. Now, I want to be careful here, and I want to find some balance, okay? Not everyone who has different ideas or a different way of doing church is an evil influence. I want to be clear about that. Not everyone who has different ideas or does church differently is an evil church or a bad church or a bad teacher or corrupt. All right, many people or many churches place an emphasis on non-essential things, and they make those non-essential things essential. What do you wear to church? What kind of worship music do you have? Um, drums or no drums, all this stuff. And, and, and we make non-essential things about the church essential. And those non-essential things, we make them essential, and then we have all this division. Okay, that's not division. That's just called differences. Okay, we just have differences, Right, in the body of Christ, um, the, that's why, the, that's why the, the community of believers is called the body of Christ. It's called the, the family of Christ. We're a family. In, in everyone's family, you're going to have differences. That doesn't mean you have to divide. It doesn't mean you don't love them and you, you, you discontinue fellowship with them. You just have differences. And, and we don't have to divide over differences. There are churches who do things different. And, and there's diversity. And that's beautiful. And the Lord loves diversity, and he loves differences of, of, of doing things. And so that's not what I'm talking about here. There's a lot of churches who just only focus on the differences, and they make those differences essentials. And, and they're like, we can't fellowship. And, and they see outsiders as, oh, you don't do church the way we do. You dress differently. You sing different songs, different worship songs. And, and they see that as, you're, that's a corrupt influence, Okay, that's, that is one extreme, and that's not what I'm talking about. There's, there's differences, and those differences can be good and can be celebrated. So we have to be careful. Just because someone has a different idea than you on what we might consider to be secondary issues, we don't automatically label them as false teachers or corrupt influences. We simply have differences within the body of Christ, and there's room for that. This quote has been attributed to so many people. I don't know who actually said this, but it's good. Someone said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, 
charity. So in the essentials, there needs to be unity in the essentials of the gospel, in the essentials of the word of God, who, the person of Jesus Christ, repentance, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Th- those are essentials. We need to be on the same page about that or else we can't fellowship. There needs to be unity in the essentials. In the non-essentials, what kind of worship music does this church do? Drums or no drums or just, uh, you can think of different examples. There, there are non-essentials. There, and, and in the non-essentials, there needs to be liberty. There needs to be room for differences. There needs to be some freedom, some, some, some space for differences in that. That's okay. In all things, charity. So in all things, love covers it all. Just because, just because we're different, we, I still love you. And, and just because um, we, there needs to be division because we're not on the same page as far as the core essential doctrines go, doesn't mean I hate you. I, I love you. I want you to, to be saved. I want you to come into the fellowship of, of God. I want you to be in the kingdom of heaven. So I still love you. So in charity, all things. Essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So there needs to be some liberty for the non-essentials. So there's some, there's some differences. That's okay. When it comes to the essential doctrines of Scripture, the Word of God, there must be unity. We have to be on the same page about this. There's this trend, talking about using discernment, there's this trend called ecumenism. Someone who's ecumenical just basically means, hey, we're all, there's many ways to God, doesn't matter, we can still, there's, it's all love, it's all about love, Jesus loved, so it's all about love. And um, the kind of coexist bumper stickers, hey, we all have different faiths, we all love, we can all celebrate, we're all part of the same fellowship. No, no, we're not. And Paul actually says that when there are those differences in the essentials, that division might be necessary. This is what he says in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. And he says, avoid them. Avoid them. They're not part of the family. Don't have fellowship with them. Avoid them. They are, a, they are a corrupt influence. What Paul is basically saying there is he says he's appealing to them, he's urging to them, I need you to watch out for people who will attempt to corrupt the church and will teach you things contrary to what the word of God says. And he says, if someone comes into the church and they are teaching doctrine that the word of God does not espouse, then you can't have fellowship with them. They are not a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't stop loving them. We want them to be a part of the kingdom, but this doesn't make up the church. We can't have fellowship with them. So if someone is attempting to come into the church and cause division and they are bringing in an obstacle, they are adding to the gospel or they are taking away from the gospel, they are not a part of the fellowship and necessary uh, division might be necessary there. This is also what he says in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter one, he tells them, if anyone comes in and preaches a different gospel, he says, even if it's an angel or even one of us, one of the apostles, and they come in and they preach a different gospel, he says, let them be cursed. So he says, if an angel from heaven comes down to earth and they teach a gospel that's different from what you've been taught in the scriptures, let them be cursed. This is where Mormonism comes to mind. 
Mormonism says that an angel from heaven came and visited a man, Joseph Smith, and gave him a new gospel that's not in the scriptures. And Paul directly says, if even an angel comes and preaches another gospel, let them be cursed. Paul even says, and if one of us, even me, so this is where Paul is even saying, even the apostles are under the authority of the scriptures. If even one of us, the apostles, if I come back to you and I share another gospel, other than we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if I preach another gospel, let me be cursed. Let, let, let the apostles be cursed because he's giving the authority to the scriptures. He's saying even the apostles are under the authority of the gospel. We don't have the right to change it. And so this is what Paul is talking about, using discernment when it comes to the essentials of the scriptures. So all this to say, here's the question. We'll we'll finish with this. Here's the question. How can I better discern potential corrupt influences that may try to nest in the branches of the church? How can I better discern potential corrupt influences that may try to nest in the branches of the church. I'm going to give you three major questions that I've asked myself that I want you to ask yourself. Whenever you watch teachings, whenever there's a popular movement, whenever you are faced with different opinions or ideologies, philosophies, different teachings, different messages, whatever it might be, I want you to ask yourself these three questions as kind of a litmus test to determine, should I embrace it or should I avoid it? So the very first question you need to ask yourself is, did did Jesus teach this? Did Jesus teach it? Number two, did the apostles practice it? And number three, do the epistles support it? If I hear of a teaching or there's a popular pastor, and I'm even talking about um, this pulpit isn't, um, you know, this to be excluded from this. Whenever you hear teachings, um, doctrine, whenever you see doctrine from other churches, um, other movements, Whenever you come across different things, you, f- you have to ask yourself, did, what did Jesus say about this? Did Jesus touch on this subject? Did Jesus teach this? Do, did the apostles practice it? The, the disciples, Paul, Peter, James, John, the apostles, the fathers of the early church, did they practice it? In scripture, do I see them embracing this tradition? There's a lot of tradition, and I, I'm not against tradition. Tradition is good. Tradition can be helpful. I love tradition. I love, you know, just practically, I love Christmas, Christmas traditions. Many of you have different traditions that you have with your family, okay? It's all great. There are traditions um, within the church, and I use that term broadly, there are different traditions that the church practices that may be unbiblical. And you have to ask yourself, do, did I see the early church practicing this? Is this something that Jesus taught? And is this something that the apostles practiced? And then finally, number three, do the epistles support it? And the epistles, that's a Bible word for the letters. All right, the epistles are the letters that the apostles wrote to different churches. So, First and Second Corinthians, those are letters, those are epistles. Um, first and Second Timothy, those are letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. He was a pastor of a church. The book of Titus. 
So all of these are letters that the apostles wrote to the different churches. And this kind of doctrine or this tradition, do do the letters, the New Testament letters, do they support this? Do they support this? Okay, when I take some kind of philosophy or ideology or some kind of a tradition and I, I pass it through these three questions, did Jesus teach this? Did the apostles practice it? Did they do it? And did the epistles, the letters, do they support this? And if the answer is no, I'm going to be very cautious in embracing it. If the word of God doesn't espouse this, then I'm going to be very cautious in coming alongside this. I'm going to be be very cautious in embracing this. And so these are three helpful questions that I want you to just ask yourself as you come across different teachings, different thoughts. Hey, I heard this, a pastor said this, or an influencer said this, or this tradition's out there. Is this biblical? Ask yourself, did Jesus teach it? Did the apostles do it? And did the letter support it? And these are three helpful questions that I've asked myself in my life when I'm faced with different teachings. We've got to bring it back and, and put everything through the grid of God's word. This is our anchor, the essentials. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So Jesus said, there's going, to be, there's going to be people in the last days, and they're not going to just reveal themselves to be ravenous wolves. They're going to disguise themselves with a fluffy kind of a message. It's going to sound appealing. It's going to sound appetizing. But they're ravenous wolves inside, but they, they go into the guise of, of sheep. So Jesus says, you need to beware, and you need to use discernment. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, which are based on human tradition and the spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. And so here in our second parable, as Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he says, church, because I love you, I want to warn you As any good friend or any good dad does, I want to warn you of of what to expect. Jesus says, because I love you, church, I want to let you know that there will be corrupt influences that try to nest in the branches of the church. And I want you to use discernment. Because not only is Satan real and not only does Satan want to oppose the work of God, but Satan has his own people on assignment who he uses, who are popular and influential, who will attempt to corrupt the church from the outside with unbiblical doctrine and unbiblical behavior. And I want you to be aware of this because I love you. And so we, using our God-given conscience and discernment by the Holy Spirit, using the playbook of God's word, use this as the anchor, as the Holy Spirit gives you discernment, because again, not everything is corrupt. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. There's room for differences. But in the essentials of the gospel, The person of Jesus Christ, salvation by our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and repentance, the essentials of the gospel. If anything is outside of that, then I'm going to be cautious to embrace it. I'm going to feed it through the the grid of God's word. Did the apostles do it? Did the the epistles support it? Did Jesus talk about it? And we just have to use discernment. And and so that's that's part of, of, of the kingdom of heaven. There will be corrupt influences who attempt to oppose this kingdom. 
And so Jesus says, because I love you, I want you to be on guard. I want you to be aware of this. And that's, that's my message for us tonight, that we would all just kind of take scope of what are, who, are, who are the people or who are the voices that I'm allowing to influence me. I'm going to take gauge of that tonight. And, and sometimes I'm going, to, I'm going to eat up the meat, but sometimes I'm going to have to spit out the bones. I'm going to just make it a point in my heart and in my life tonight, not just to embrace every, everything I hear about church or everything I hear about Jesus. I'm going to sift it through the grid of God's word. I'm going to use discernment and make it your, your, your goal just this year to just develop that spiritual gift of discernment. And, and all you need to do is as simple as just asking. Just ask God, God, I want to guard my heart and my mind from the corrupt influences of Satan in the world. Lord, would you help me to develop that spiritual tool of discernment in my life so that my mind can be fixed on you, so that I can have a healthy heart, and out of the overflow of my heart, my actions will follow. And so it's just simple as just asking God, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you give me discernment? So let's, let's go before the Lord now, and let's do that. Let's just ask the Lord collectively, Lord, would you give us discernment because what I want for this body of believers, I want us to be a healthy group who celebrates the different differences that we have, the non-essentials. There's some liberty. There's some room for that. But in the essentials, I want us to all be on the same page. I want us to be united on the gospel. I want us to be united on repentance of sin, trust in Christ for salvation. I want us to be united in the essentials. So I want us to be a healthy group who uses discernment and who knows how to exercise discernment in our lives. So let's pray. God, you've overheard our Bible study tonight, and I just pray that you would help us now. Pray that you would help us to exercise discernment in our lives. After reading Matthew chapter 13 tonight and hearing the words of Jesus, we know that you love us and you care about us because you've warned us about keeping an eye on the different corrupt influences. And I just pray that, Lord, we would be a group who who doesn't allow the influences of the world to infiltrate our minds and our hearts, Lord. We as a group desire to be united in the essentials, Lord. So I pray that first of all, Lord, that you would protect us, that you would keep us safe from the outside corrupt influences that will attempt to nest in the branches of the church, that will attempt to infiltrate the church. Keep us safe, Lord. Guard us, protect us, Lord, corporately. And I just also pray individually, Lord, would you help us, Lord? Would you guard our hearts and minds? For those of us who have been just lazy in the discipline of discernment, would you help us, Lord, to develop that? We just humbly ask by your Holy Spirit, God, would you give us discernment? Would you help us to be able to recognize that which is true, rooted in Scripture, from that which is false? Help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Lord. We need you, God. We can't do this on our own, Lord. So we just pray that you would move in our hearts, Lord, that you would build up our strength, build up our faith in you. As we read the word of God, would you, would you just put the word of God into our minds so deeply? Would you root your scripture into our hearts and our minds so deeply that we just are able to memorize scripture better than we have before? That when we get in the word, that verses would just jump off the pages, that we would just... Just dive so deep down into the scripture that we would just root ourselves and anchor ourselves in your word, Lord, so that when we go out into the world and we associate with unbelievers at our workplaces, in our family, at our schools, Lord, that we would be able to share the truth of the scriptures, Lord, that we would be able to share the gospel. So help us just to 
eat the meat, spit out the bones. Lord, protect us from corrupt influences and help us to use discernment by the power of your Holy Spirit. We rest in you now, God. We, we trust you, Lord. And then we ask that by our discernment that we would be able to go out and expand the kingdom of heaven and invite whoever in that would be willing to turn from sin and trust Christ, that we would be willing to just cast that net out and, and rope him into the kingdom of heaven, Lord, because we, we love the world. We love the lost and, and dying, Lord. So use us, Lord. Help us to use discernment. Help us to go out into the world who needs you to share the truth of the scripture, Lord. We love you. Um, I just thank you for this group. Just pray your special blessing upon this group, Lord, for the retreat coming up in a couple of weeks. May that time just be such a refreshing time, Lord, where we grow in our faith, Lord. Be with us as we go about the rest of our week. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.